Uh, this evening we are continuing our, and we're in part four of our series on Calvinism, the five points uh, which give to us a, a robust and a deep theology of grace. That's what we've called it, a, a theology of grace. We need a, a working, a robust, a deep understanding of what Scripture means by grace because, look, even works righteousness Mormons are going to say that they are saved by grace and they agree with that. And, and if we are a church that assumes things, like we'll call ourselves Reformed Baptist, but we just assume people know what we mean by that. Assume you know what Calvinism is. Assume you know what I mean by certain phrases like election, sovereignty, uh, and that sort of thing. That As long as we assume things, we miss things. A fog in the pulpit creates... No, what, what is it? A, a mist in the pulpit creates a fog in the pew. We just don't create robust, learning, theologically uh, 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 developing disciples by avoiding the particulars, the specifics, and especially those most controversial ones. So that's what we love to do. We love to teach, we love to go to the Bible and be explicit and specific, unapologetic about those things that we believe. And today we are up to part four of our Tulip series, Calvinism series. The, the, the doctrine has been broken up into a, um, a, 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 an acrostic, uh, which is a flower, the flower tulip. This is just a re, re, uh, uh, review for those who are familiar. But the, the Netherlands flower of the nation is, is a tulip. And so where this, this uh, 1600s big meeting, the Synod of uh, Dort was held, they, they, they put the five points of Calvinism about how we are saved into this acrostic of T-U-L-I-P. T being total depravity, first of all, that we cannot choose God, we cannot receive Jesus Christ by our own free will because our will is in fact enslaved and dead in sin. Next of all, we, we covered the U, which is unconditional election, which is that God, by his free grace, before the foundations of the world, not regarding something that he foresaw in you, but simply because of his own purposes and grace, which is, is a mystery to us, he chose some who he has eternally unified to his son, Jesus Christ. Those are called the elect or the chosen ones. They are the only people who get saved and go to heaven because God overcame our total depravity in choosing us. Then we went to L, which was last week, limited atonement. I don't like the name of that. I prefer definite atonement or particular redemption, but it doesn't fit with a flower. And, uh, and, and by that we mean that the atonement of Jesus, the death of Christ on the cross, was in, the, in God's mind and in Christ's suffering for a particular people, a limited amount of people. It was not just to make a doorway open to salvation, but to actually purchase souls, souls to believe, to be fully saved, who were purchased and redeemed entirely by the blood of Jesus. And then I, tonight, is in the acrostic tulip, is irresistible grace. We could otherwise call it effectual calling, but by this we mean that God, in our moment of conversion, is the primary and, in fact, sole actor to bring us into salvation. We'll, we'll look at what that looks, uh, means in a little bit. And P, which will be next week, is perseverance of the saints. That is, that everyone who God has chosen, everyone who comes to faith, everyone who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, will persevere until the end. There's no such thing as losing your salvation. So I enjoy, I look forward to going through that with you next week. At the moment, I've got, a, I've got a definition. We've started each sermon with a definition to work from. Today is a little bit lengthy. <clears throat> and it's, it's this, uh, a little bit of review. Since we are totally depraved and unable to freely choose 
to receive Jesus while our hearts are enslaved to sin. And since God elected certain people to save, who Jesus died specifically for on the cross, therefore, the elect are brought to repentance and faith at God's appointed time in their life, not by them working with God, but by the Spirit doing all the work needed to bring them to spiritual life. He does this by removing their state of total depravity, taking away their heart of stone, removing their blindness, and giving to them new hearts, giving them new wills so that they desire Jesus and willingly choose him. And this all happens through the hearing of God's preached word. I hope that was helpful. We'll dig into it more. Uh, this thing is not cooling me down at all. Pardon me. That should help. <clears throat> I love this, so I'm getting, I'm getting sweaty. The more, the more excited I get, the more sweaty I get. <clears throat> so, uh, uh, let, let, let's uh, define first of all. You can go to Romans 8, verse 28. This has been a, somewhat of a frequent verse that we've been going back to. Romans chapter 8. But what we want to do first is just define for ourselves... And determine for ourselves right from the outset that there are two different types in Scripture. There are two different types of calling. I said before that irresistible grace uh, is the name given to this. And I prefer the words effectual calling. Uh, but whether we take grace or we take calling, there are really two different types of grace in the Bible when we start talking about this. And there really are two types of calling. Because the Bible is going to say in some times that everyone is called. And at other times, it's going to say that only a few are called. At, all at some times, it's going to say God has grace to everybody. And yet at other times, he's going to say that his grace always brings people to salvation. So, so what is it? Is grace resistible or is it irresistible? Is the calling of God specific or general? And we need to say, yes, it is all of those things but in different categories, and Scripture speaks of it in different categories. So first of all, there is the general call, or what we might call the outward call. And that is that everybody who sits in a church, well, not all churches, right? But everybody who, who hears the gospel, everybody who listens to preaching, or who is a child of a, of a faithful parent telling them the gospel, everyone hears the general call outwardly as humans speak the gospel to them. But there's a couple of necessary elements there. It is outward... It is verbal, it has to be spoken or, or read, of course, from the word or in a tract, but it is merely a human voice commanding repentance and belief. That's the general call, and we can say that that call is resistible. It's not certainly successful, it is not what we will call effectual. Effectual is like the, the word effective, it means it always achieves what it sets out to do. It's not effectual. Not every person you've told believe in Christ has in that moment been brought to new life and done so because you told them. So it, it is a, an, an often ineffectual outward call, but it is yet a genuine offer of God's grace to sinners. All sinners, elect and non-elect, can hear that. However, then we talk of the inward call, or what we're calling the effectual call. And this call is not made externally, but it is made internally to the soul of the human. And it is not made by a mere human voice. 
It is made by the voice of God. That is, that is not verbal. I heard it said this week. Somebody said, you, you, you know, you, you hear the voice of God and you come to Christ. And somebody asked, well, was it verbal? Like you heard the voice of God verbally? And they said, oh, no, it wasn't verbal. It was much louder than that. It was the inward call of the Holy Spirit on my life. I, I love that. It was much louder than verbal. It was, it was inward. So, so only the elect hear it. It is, in fact, God's voice that is calling them. And it is, in fact, not merely an offer. It is not an offer of the divine, omnipotent God to people, but it is, in fact, a divine summons. We see the difference in that in one of the parables that Jesus tells about the kingdom of God. And he says, you know, go and publish the invitation and then people don't respond. And so he says, that's it. Go out and find the raggedy, crippled, homeless people and compel them to come in. Like go grab them and walk them here. They don't have working legs anyway. You really have a lot of freedom to do that. Bring them here. That's the, the, the two ideas of one is a king's invitation, which can be resisted. But when we talk of the effectual call, we're talking about a divine summons by which everyone who hears it obeys the voice of their creator God and come into a different kind of existence. We see in, in Romans 4 that Paul says, um, I, I can't give you verses off the top of my head, I think it's 13, where Paul says that God was speaking to Abraham with, with an authority that calls things into existence that don't exist. When God says, believe in Christ, be alive, we move existences. Things, things create into existence as he talks to them. Let there be light. Bam, there is light. That is the creating, effectual call of the authoritative God. So in Romans 8, 28, we, we, we see this second kind of usage of the word call, what we're calling the effectual call. In Romans 8, verse 28 through 30, Paul says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. What an awesome, glorious promise. For whatever you're going through at the moment, everything is a, is a stitch in the divine plan for your life and your joy. For all, uh, we know that, all, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is what is called the golden chain of redemption. In that it, it shows us this unbreakable linked chain from eternity past into eternity future. God is making these election promises and purposes, and that's in verse 28. We, we spoke about that a couple of weeks ago in election. The verse 28, um, uh, uh, sorry, verse 29 shows us those who he foreknew, he predestined, that is those who he had elected, he set to a certain destination. That happened in eternity past. And at the end of verse 30, he ends in eternity future, saying we're going to be glorified into the full and finalized image of Christ. We're looking forward to that. But in the middle, in verse 28, what we see is that, that the called, we see this phrase of the called according to his purpose. This is the effectual calling that we were saying before. We know this because the same group that is called the called is the same group that verse 28 says are those who love God. So in verse 20, so it cannot be speaking of the called being anybody who hears the gospel, 
They're not called according to his purpose in the Romans 8 sense because those who are called according to his purpose are called by God because those are the people who actually love God and that cannot be spoken of everybody. So look in verse 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And he just redefines the group of people. For those who I was just talking about who are called according to his purpose. So that the believing, the saints, the Christians are those who are uniquely called in this sense. Then verse 29 recaps election and predestination. And then in verse 30, we see that the predestined are the called, and the called are the justified, and the justified are the glorified. That's the unbreakable same group all the way through. There's no additions to the number. There's no added names, and there's no, no depleted names, no lost people in that group. The same group that the Father elects for his Son is the same group that in life are regenerated and then in, in, in eternity are glorified. Same group, same group. No, there's no language of some of here. Some of those called were justified. But every single person who was called is justified. In verse 30, those whom he predestined, he called. So this is something that happens only to the elect. He called. And those whom he called, he justified. That's what we mean by effectual. There's no such thing that in this sense, somebody is hearing the call, considering Christ, hearing the summons of God to believe, and still rejecting it. This is what the, the, the Arminians or non-Calvinists will call resistible grace. They'll say, God, God commands all people to repent, but it's resistible. You're able, by your free will, to say no to that. Not according to Romans 8. Every single person who the Lord calls effectually and inwardly are justified, which means they are regenerated, they have faith, they believe, they are declared righteous. So that's Romans 8, 28 through 30. <clears throat> Tonight's point really is there on that, on that main point of the called, the calling, those who are effectually called and meet with irresistible grace. Those who hear this type of call always end in justification. And we can see the same thing, go over one book into 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The same idea here of outward call and inward call. First Corinthians chapter one, verse twenty through twenty what? Twenty-two through twenty-four. And there Paul says this Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. He's making in verse 22 and 23 a universal uh, condemnation or a universal negative. He's, he's using the language of Jews and Greeks or Jews and Gentiles is what he might say, uh, saying Romans. We might think I'm not Greek and I'm not a Jew. What about the rest of us? Uh, obviously, he is just using that as, as really just the parlance of saying the Jew and the non-Jew, which is everybody. And in his, uh, his lived experience, in his century, uh, the, the problems were, the stumbling block of Christ was that the Jews want, want power. They want conquering Messiah. And if you tell them that their, their Messiah is dead, he was crucified by the Romans, you're putting weakness to them. It's folly and they despise that. 
But then you go to the non-Jews and you present Christ as, as the divine being who came into this world he created, was one of us, died and was resurrected, and they start saying, that's folly. We can't accept that because, because to be God is to be above us. They wouldn't bother with us. To be, to be powerful is to not become like us and, and not, not redeem human flesh. That is all foolishness. So the Jews hated the cross. The Greeks hated the incarnation and all that that meant. And so Paul says, there's no people group you can go to where the gospel fits into their cultural milieu, will fit into their, their tastes and their preferences anyway. Every culture we preach to will have something about the gospel that is offensive to them. So that's the universal negative. Everyone despises the gospel when we present it to them. However, among the Jews and among the Greeks, there is parts of what we, we call this third group, which is the called. He says that in verse 24. Verse 22 and 23, very damning. It's the, the, the Jews want signs of power, not crucifixion. The Greeks seek wisdom, not this folly of incarnation. But all we do is preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. No one wants it. But, verse 24 says, to those who are called, so now a third group of people, that are from amongst the Jews and the Greeks, we're preaching Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom. They hate the weakness, they hate the folly, but if they are the called, they, have, they see it as power and as wisdom. So Paul is saying the decisive thing that makes somebody able to respond is not their race, is not their learning, is not their own free will, but that they have been called by God. That is what we mean by the effectual calling. It is the decisive, effective, final, active, sovereign work of the Holy Spirit in the moment of salvation. So we could say in one sense, aren't all called? Well, yes, in the sense that Paul was speaking to Jews and Gentiles. And yet in the divine sense, are all called in the powerful way? We say no. No, because all of the called, Paul says, believe, not everybody believes. Now, three things about effectual calling. Number one, we're going to say it's all the work of God. Number two, we're going to say uh, God's work involves our willing. And number three, we'll, we'll talk about the relationship of it to the preached word of God. So first of all, turn to Ephesians chapter 2, and I believe it will be on the screen behind me as well. <clears throat> now, we've been here before. We've been in Ephesians talking about uh, our total depravity, that we were dead in sin. We've been in Ephesians uh, uh, talking about in chapter 1, the, the sovereignty of the Father in electing people for his Son before the foundations of the world. Today what we see is in, in chapter 2, we see that the, the work of us becoming Christians is entirely the work of God. And it has to be so because we're totally depraved. And it must be so because God's chosen who he will work in. So we see the internal consistency here. But in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, after just talking about the depravity of mankind and how we are naturally children under God's wrath, following the devil, following our lusts and our passions. Verse 4, Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say, praise the Lord for the butts in the Bible. And everyone awkwardly says amen. He's an old Welsh dude. It was it was funny then. It's funny now. Praise the Lord for the butts in the Bible. But God. There's your situation. Dead in the grave of sin. But God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, 
even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So, so that we were with him in that resurrection. We were with him in the ascension. We were with Jesus spiritually and unitedly as he sat down on the throne. That happened to us. And yet he is also speaking of our lived experience. The moment you got converted. The moment that, that you placed your faith in Jesus and that you were born again and you entered into salvation, Paul doesn't speak about you and your choice and your faith until he gets down to verse 8. And even then he says, it's God's grace that saves us through your faith, but that faith is a gift from God. So he's, he's here, look again in, in, verse, uh, uh, in verse 4. It's God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Not, not, not us loving him. He loved us and decidedly acted even when we were dead in our trespasses. And what did he do? He didn't bring us to the point or, or the brink of, of the, the balance between total depravity and, and righteousness. He doesn't, he doesn't bring us sort of up out of the grave but leave us floating there and give us a choice. He simply decidedly makes us alive. He does it all. Paul is saying, he made us alive, and then he's just caught mid-sentence, by grace you have been saved, back on track, and so he raised us up, he made us alive, and then raised us up with him and seated him with Jesus Christ, the end of verse 6 says. So when Paul starts talking about the theology behind your salvation, he doesn't even mention you, you're just passive, it's not done by you, it's done to you, he doesn't do it with us, he does it to you. He saved you by himself, for himself, from himself. He did everything. We see the same in Colossians 2, verse 13. A couple of books over. In Colossians 2, verse 13, he's speaking about you being redeemed, you being transferred to the kingdom. And he says, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses. So he forgives our trespasses in the cross, and then in, at some appointed time in your life, he makes you alive. He doesn't debate with you. He doesn't converse with you. He doesn't offer something to you. He makes a decisive, divine summons that creates new life in you and brings you into the kingdom of his son. This is the effectual calling. Or well, we see the same in 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, sorry, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. And he says, praising God, again, for people's salvation. And he doesn't mention, really, their faith or their belief or their decision. He just praises God for the salvation. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He caused us, as the, this is what we will call monogistic way of salvation. Uh, monogism is mono and energo, meaning uh, energy or working. Mono meaning single, like the guy you used to date that had a mono brow. There we go. So, so, so mono means single, energy means working. 
in salvation, your conversion, although that can sometimes technically, theologically mean something else, your regeneration, your being saved, is a monogistic work. It is a work of God alone, opposed to those people who want to say that it is, it is a synergistic work, where you act along with God. There's two hands on the rope pulling this thing into the harbor. There's, there's two lots of, of uh, uh, teammates working here, us and God. He's, he's of course, doing 99% of it. But there has to be some sense of your will, your decision, your choice, in order for God to save you. That is not the case. It is monogistic. It is all of God. He caused you to be born again. He made you alive. He raised us up with Jesus Christ. Because this effectual calling is a creating work of God alone. And therefore we are said to be passive in it. What we start seeing here is this relationship between regeneration and what we're calling irresistible grace. Or regeneration and the effectual call. They're almost the same thing. And until about the 18th century, the 1700s, theologians didn't really start distinguishing them very tightly. They would pretty much just talk about the moment when the Holy Spirit comes to give you life is the same thing as the effectual call when God calls you to life. So as if we can think of the creation account, when God commands something and it's the spirit that is over the water enacting that powerfully. I like to think of these more connectedly than what maybe modern-day reform people like to. I, I, I want to say that they're almost the exact same thing. You can speak of regeneration and effectual call almost interchangeably. But if you want to be up to speed with the modern reformed theological uh, way of looking at it, we should distinguish but not separate the effectual call and regeneration. Burkhoff says it pretty well. He says, regeneration is subconscious. In other words, you don't know it's happening. Regeneration is not something that changes your body, that you start seeing different colors, that, uh, that, that anything happens to you. It is spiritual, it is inward, and it is subconscious. However, then they would say that the effectual call is a, is a conscious sense of God's calling you to believe. A, a, a divine imperative being pressed into the heart that you understand, I, I am a sinner. Jesus is a savior. I desire him. I wish to be saved. I do not want to be judged. That, that kind of conscious sense of the call is what they would call the effectual calling. And, and I'm not usually one to throw away distinctions, but, but, but it's a distinction that we make uh, carefully and don't then over-apply back onto Scripture because I can't see those distinctions occurring in Colossians 2, 1 Peter 1, and, and um, uh, uh, Ephesians 2. But it is helpful at least to think of these two things distinctly and not separately. Uh, think of John 11, John chapter 11, Lazarus, right? Lazarus is dead. Uh, Jesus comes back into town and, and while he is brokenhearted, he goes to, to call him to life. And in the command that Jesus makes to the graveyard, he says, Lazarus, come out. Now, that is in one sense one command, and yet it's two commands. Because in order for Lazarus to come out, he has to first be made alive. So really, he's making one command, come out, and yet he's commanding, be alive, and then come out. We can sort of distinguish that and say that that's a good picture of regeneration and effectual call. At the one moment, God is saying to the sinner, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And yet, in order to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, he first has to impart new life into you. So that like Lazarus, we are, we are made alive in the calling, and then we are able to hear the calling that is being made at that moment, and then we come out in obedience and faith, and faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I think that that's a, a helpful picture. So, that is, that is the sense in which our, whether we call it regeneration, effectual calling, or, or whatever it is, we've seen there from those verses, that act of effectual calling is entirely the work of God. And that's how the scripture views it. Your, your salvation. You, we, give our, we give our testimony and we say what we did and how we uh, interpret it. But then we go to scripture and realize this is how God sees that moment. He says, remember when you were a floating corpse and I plucked you up and made you alive? Remember when you were away from me as an enemy and I just made you in my son's kingdom? When I gave to you spiritual life, that is how God sees it. And so that comes to our second point. The, the relationship between God's call and our will. Because a lot of us will ask the question, this is usually the most frequent question I get at this point, is, I don't know, when I was saved, wasn't I willing? Like, I remember feeling bad about my sin. I remember wanting to be saved. I felt like heaven was better than hell. I, I wanted to honor Jesus. I'm the one who, who did that. I'm the one who willed. I don't want to take credit for salvation. Jesus died on the cross. But I made the choice. I was willing, right? To which we can say, yes, Yes, you did choose, you did will, you did believe, your affections were towards Jesus Christ, and yet you were willing because God made you willing. You were believing because God decisively was making you to believe. You were choosing because God was giving you the new mind, the new heart that desired Jesus Christ. So that grace, when we're talking irresistible grace, we're saying it's irresistible because it's not knocking really hard on the door of our hearts, but is in fact sliding around the back door and in fact unlocking it from the inside. The grace of God doesn't just barge through as if you weren't willing. And so let's throw away that idea that, that God drags sinners kicking and screaming to salvation as if I don't want to be saved, I despise the Lord Jesus, and then bang, they're, they're a Christian. Dang it, I believe. Oh, I'm going to heaven. I really wanted to, uh, to you know, uh, uh, be an enemy of Christ all of my life. Darn it, I'm obeying Jesus and I want to disobey him. That doesn't happen. People don't believe unwillingly. They don't will unwillingly. They are made to will by God's power alone. The being made alive that Ephesians meant was you, you were made alive subconsciously. Your, your feelings changed, your will changed, your mind changed, your soul changed. Everything about you changed in that regenerating effectual call. So in John 6, you can go there. In John 6, we see this relationship between God being entirely sovereign and yet people making a choice. We were here a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about election and the fact that God has, Jesus has a, a certain group of people that only the Father has chosen. But in John 6 verse 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That word draw is in some places, in, I mean, it's the word used for Paul when he got arrested. It's the word used for Jesus when he was dragged before the, uh, uh, the, the, the magistrate. So this is, a, this is a forceful, effectual word. 
It's not as if drawing uh, really means uh, wooing, trying to tempt, flirting with your affections to try and convince you. That's not what drawing means. The Father is not generally inviting people to Christ. He is drawing them as if he is taking them from one place, decisively placing them before the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus says, No one can come to me, that is, no one can have faith in me, unless first the Father who sent me draws them to a place where they're in a different spiritual state and now they can believe. And yet in verse 37, he says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father does that to will in fact come to me and be saved. Therefore we know this is not just something God the Father does to everybody. That's what non-Calvinists want to say. Yeah, we can't come to Jesus unless the Father draws us, but he draws all of us in different ways, doesn't he? No. This is very sad in verse 37 that every single person drawn by the Father or called by the Father will believe. Everyone, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So yes, the called will come. But can you see there the fact that those who are drawn by the Father are in the same time willingly coming to Christ? You willed because God created and you will within you. You chose because God created that choosing affection. John 1, go back five chapters into chapter 1, and we see the same thing, verse 12 and 13. Verse 12, he says, uh, he's already said in verse 11, Jesus came, no one received him, but... Thank God for the buts in the Bible. But, verse 12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. So, so there's the, that human element. I, I did. I received the Lord Jesus Christ as my Messiah, my Savior, my mediator. And then the next phrase, he says, who believed in his name. I, I believed in the promises of Jesus. I believed in who he said he was. I, I believed. That was a personal belief. It wasn't forced. I believed. John says, yes, and all who received and all who believed in his name were given the right to become the children of God. And that's all that the non-Calvinist wants to say. But our Bible doesn't stop there. He keeps going and says, and these people were born, that is, the, they came into the spiritual state of being a child of God, not by their blood, not by their little lineage, not by the will of the flesh, right? Not by their energy and their sweating to be good enough, and not of the will of man. You were made willing, not by your own will. You willed to believe in Jesus because God first willed to give you a new will. You believed in Jesus because God first gave you that belief to utilize. You were born not of the flesh or of the activity or of your own decision, but you were born first of God, then you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is to say, <clears throat> this is not against our wills, it is not without our wills, but that God makes us willing. Uh, this, this, if you're confused, it's just all throughout scripture. We just need to, need to work with all these texts until we're comfortable with it. Uh, uh, there's this dynamic that causes a lot of tension. Was it God doing it or was it me choosing? We see the same thing in Philippians 2 verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, Paul says, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You work out the, the effects and the implications of your salvation for... It's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
So what is it? Do I need to work out my salvation with effort and with fear before the Lord? Or is God going to do it because he's working in me to will and to act? The answer is yes. You need to work to will and act because God is working in you to will and act. He's putting it in first by the Holy Spirit, and we therefore act it out. Yes, you make decisions. You make choices. You act on your will because God is first giving you a Christ-like will. Well, the same thing can be seen in verse, Philippi, uh, verse 29 of Philippians 1, when he says, For it has been granted to you. That is, given to you by a divine imperative. God gave to you. That for the Lord, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Do you see that what Paul is saying? That your suffering and your believing were both given gifts from the Father. The Father gave you the belief, and he gave you this opportunity to suffer. But, but we're focusing on the first part, that he says, to you it has been granted to believe. God gave you the belief that you then used. So yes, you believe, but God enacted that. And we see the same in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 and 26. He's talking about the pastor. He says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everybody, able to teach, and yet patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So he said, well, what is it? Should the pastor teach or will God grant them repentance that leads to truth? Yes, both. Will, will the person be made willing to return or will God make them willing to return? Yes, God will give repentance and they will come to their senses. Both and. But primarily... The active and ultimate force and the, prior, the, the prior decision is God acting first, us in response to his, his works. And thirdly, we see here that our effectual calling is through and by his preached word, his written word. So go to 1 Peter chapter 1. I really do want you to see this with your own eyes in your Bible, the way that, that Peter runs this through. 1 Peter chapter 1, towards the very end, verse 23 to 25, he's, he's exhorting them to be pure, loving brothers and sisters. And here's his reason, verse 23. Since you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of imperishable. In other words, I'm calling you to this high standard of Christian living and love because I'm not talking to people who have some finite mortal, spiritual life within you. I'm speaking to people who have an imperishable, undying, incorruptible, powerful, immortal life in you. You have the Holy Spirit. You've been born again by, by the seed that is in you. The question becomes, that seed which is in you that makes you a Christian and gives you spiritual life, what is that seed? That seed that has been planted in your heart, that brings about imperishable, living, abiding life. Verse 23, he says in verse 25, is called, he says, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. So, so let's go again, see the relationship. Verse 23, you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed, through the living and abiding word of God, Verse 25, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. 
So the seed that is in you is planted, which germinates into eternal life, imperishable spiritual life. That's the effectual calling. So we can say, well, this is regeneration. This is when God makes us alive in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Peter was talking about in chapter 1, verse 3. And yet, he's saying that the, the eternal life that came in, came in by means of the planted seed, and that seed is the living and abiding word of God, that word of God is, is concentrated in the gospel that was preached to you. So, so Jesus' parable comes to mind. When you're preaching the gospel, you're planting seeds, or you're at least sowing them. And to each of God's elect, that seed will land, and eventually it will germinate into life. What this means is that though God has determined, as we said in our first definition, God has determined that every elect person who he has redeemed by the blood of Jesus, will be released from their total depravity and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ through the effectual call at some point in their life. And yet, that will not happen outside of the means of them hearing the word of God, the gospel being planted in their heart, and God using that to bring them to life and faith and repentance. This is what drove Paul. We need to get to the ends of the world because God has people everywhere. We need to not think, I'm sure they're elect. I'm sure God will save all his elect. I'm sure eternal life will come up from nowhere. Maybe in a dream, maybe that guy will just wake up one day. He'll be saved. He doesn't need us to speak to him. No, they need to hear the word of God in order to be made alive. Because it's the word of God which, which holds the power of God. We'll see again, James chapter 1, verse 8. Sorry, 18. And this will really encapsulate everything that we've said tonight. James chapter 1, verse 18. He says, speaking of God, of his own will, he has brought us forth. That's effectual call. God willed to make you alive and did it. It's the language used of birth. He brought you forth by his own will. He made you alive by his own will. He made you born again by his own will. He did it all. That was him. He raised you up. Through, James says, he made you alive by his own will. He brought you forth by the word of truth. That is, the scriptures encapsulated especially in the preached gospel. So that you are made alive by God's will, enacted by the Holy Spirit, through the means of the word of God being planted into your heart, so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures, he says in verse 18. So it's the, it's the same word that you hear in the, affection, in, the, in the external call, in the gospel call. We'll say to everybody, repent and believe in Jesus, and that same word will fall on some stony ground and be ineffectual, and to others it will be planted, and at some time that God chooses, it will germinate to spiritual life. Through the word, the life comes. Through the, word, through the Spirit's word comes the Spirit's life. So, this is, therefore, an encapsulation. Let me reread one last time our definition before we close. The elect are brought to repentance and faith at God's appointed time, not by them working with God, synergism, but by the Spirit doing all the work to bring them to spiritual life. He does this by removing their state of total depravity, taking away their heart of stone, removing all their blindness, and by giving to them new hearts, giving them new wills so that they desire Jesus and willingly choose him. And this all happens through the hearing of God's 
word. The word of God that we've said so many times can germinate at any times, but God particularly likes, and we see this in the book of Acts, he particularly likes using those moments of public proclamation. When the church is gathered, others are invited, the word is being heard, God particularly loves to bless this moment that we're in right now. When our hearts have been prepared through the worship towards God's Son. When our, when our minds are collectively pressed in in this, in this covenantal community meeting with the living God. At this moment when Jesus is, is lifted up in word and is lifted up in our hearts. And we, we spiritually see him as crucified. And we who are saved so delight in the love of God and rejoice in the Holy Spirit. That time especially God loves to use by his Holy Spirit the word to bring new people to himself. So at this very moment, I compel by the power of the Holy Spirit and I, and I promise on the authority of the Word of God that those who are outside of Christ must come to Him now. You do not need to fear the terrible process of conversion. You do not need to fear whether you will make it or if Jesus will receive you. If you don't know whether you're being born again, you just know you're a sinner. You just know you need salvation. And at this point, we promise the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ. His words are those words which are erupting into your heart. It's His power which is bringing you forth if you believe. So today... Today believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He died to be punished for your sins. He discharged all that the law required. God looks at you forgiven when you come to him. He was raised again and you receive that same life by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's, there's no excuse. There's no reason. We pray and implore you to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Be saved today to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father God, we, we glorify you and praise you. We bless you, as Peter says, because you have made us born again. We can give all glory to you, saying solely Deo Gloria, because it is all the work that is done by you that brought us forth. And we know now our walk, our life, our, our sanctification is synergistic. It is us working with you because now we have wills that can work with you, but we remember we look back to that day while we were sinners, while, as Paul said, we were, we were dead in our sins. By grace we were saved. You made us alive. You gave and you did everything. Lord, we, we, are, we are simply trophies of your grace. We are simply those who you have worked on, not with. You are the people that you did something to, not with. We acknowledge with our bended knee that you are the sovereign, you are the saviour, you did it all and we, we simply received your grace. But Lord, we pray that your spirit would be so pleased with the word that goes on in this church, in the conversations in this church and in the pro proclamation in the world of this church, Lord, that you would bless us with the spirit's work in bringing new people to salvation. Even tonight, would your irresistible grace be at work to bring people to new life? And even this week, may you use our words, feeble as we are, to communicate the word of truth, which is the seed of the living and uh, empowering word. Please, God, save our lost brothers and sisters through our words when we speak your word. And for the glory of God the Father, through the Lordship of Jesus Christ, everybody prayed and said, Amen. Amen.